0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. In just a moment, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Before we do that, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Will you bow with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here in your house. We have worshipped you, and the worship has been filled with your presence. We have heard your voice in the singing. We have felt the vibrations of your spirit in the instruments. We've seen your smile in the faces of our children And now, Lord, we pray that we'd hear your voice from the pages of your word. As we come to you to worship you, Lord, we also come to bring people who need our prayers to you. Lord, we pray for Betty Burl in the hospital at Griffin. We pray for Wanda Smith as she recovers from her back surgery. We pray for Ronald Stover as the doctors try to figure out exactly what's going on with him. Lord, he's my neighbor. He's the best neighbor I've ever had, and I just pray for him. I pray for Rebecca Summers with all the different health issues that she suffers. And I pray, Lord, that you would remove the gout from Gerald Todd. Lord, I pray for Ms. Barbara Browning as she continues to recover from her surgery. And I pray for Jake Cordell and Joan as she cares for him so faithfully. Lord, I pray for the healing of Tom Roper. I pray, Lord, that you'd help him not only to be healed, but to gain back the strength that the treatment has taken from him. Lord, I pray for Chuck Smith and for Roger and Jane Smith as they care for their son in Emory Hospital. Lord, I pray for Dottie Priatko. And I pray for the family of Mr. Tom Galat. What a great, great man. Lord, I pray for our relocation process. It's been such a long time coming and we wait for you, but Lord, there's a a sense in which you're waiting for us. Lord, I pray that the economy would get better so that we can stand up and be able to move forward. Lord, until that time, Lord, hold us together and help us to be faithful to you in the face of extreme adversity. Lord, let us never give up on trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians is a letter, It's the first letter that uh, Paul ever wrote. He wrote it sometime around 51 AD. He had spent about three weeks in Thessalonica founding a church, and then he was run out of town. He went down to Berea, from there he went to uh, uh, Corinth, and from there he went to Athens. He's writing this letter to these folks because he's concerned that he, he did not get to spend long enough with them to establish them. Not only that, after he left, some opponents of Paul came in and were spreading false accusations about him, so he spent the better part of three chapters uh, defending himself against these false allegations. But now in chapter 4... He's going to deal with some other matters that are going on in the church at Thessalonica. Um, you know, it's one, thing when we, it's one thing to be saved. It's one thing to be Christians, to have a relationship with Jesus. But beyond that, there are some things that God requires of us, expects of us, empowers us, and enables us to become And Paul is very concerned that the Thessalonian Christians grow in their faith. That they live lives that are pleasing to God. But what does it mean to live a life that is pleasing to God? What does that mean? He's going to give some general answers to that question in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We pick up with verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact, you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we have told you and warned you before, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, You do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody to conduct a survey here this morning, okay? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Kind of shake out your right hand so you can get ready to vote. Are you ready? Just shake it out. Come on, shake it out. Go ahead. There you go. Huh. Here we go. How many of you desire to live a life that pleases God? Raise your hand. How many of you desire to live a life that pleases God? Raise your hand. Okay, thank you. Everybody in the house, but three folks. All right, question number two, and the final question. How many of you believe that right now you are living a life that is pleasing to God? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right, I don't know how many people we have here today. Uh, I would guess somewhere around maybe 160, 170 folks. Did we get a count? Y'all, you guys already counted, Mr. Mark. 158. What? 158. 158. I was, I was two off. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Yeah. All right. So, around 158 people. Out of 158 people, almost everybody raised their hand. They wanted to please God. When I ask how many people believe that right now they're pleasing God, there was about 12, 10 to 12 hands, uh, assuming that I missed one or two. Why is it, do you think, that when you conduct a survey like that, almost everybody desires to live a life that's pleasing to God, but a small percentage of those who desire that believe that they are actually doing that? Now, granted, I'm sure there were probably some of you who thought, well, I'm I'm living a life that's pleasing to God. But you just didn't quite want to raise your hand for thinking that somebody might think that you're something you think you're something that you're not. Or maybe I don't know. We had we had about 12 people who were honest enough to, to raise their hands. But the majority of us. And this, this occurs in survey after survey after survey. The majority of Christians desire to please God, but a strong majority of those who desire to please God don't believe that they do. I read uh, a survey recently that was similar to the one that I just uh, did with you. It happened during a Sunday morning service in uh, a little town church in uh, Missouri. A few years back, the pastor asked the congregation how many of them really want to please God more than anything else. And he said every hand in the sanctuary went up. And then he said, he asked them, he says, how many of you think God is really pleased with you right now? And he said, out of at least 400 people, there was one 11-year-old boy and one 10-year-old girl who raised their hands and that was it. Now, we all know that God desires that we live lives that are pleasing to him. And most of us want to live lives that are pleasing to God. The question is, what does it mean to please God? It could be, after all, that uh, many of us who raised our hands that we wanted to please God, but who didn't raise our hands thinking we have pleased God, maybe we don't know exactly what it means to please God. We've heard a a dozen trillion different definitions of what it means to please God. Some people have a do this, don't do that list. And it's mostly a don't do that list more than a do this list. And they say this is what it means to please God. Uh, Some people, it's just a list, uh, maybe a book of, of rules. 345 rules that you must abide by in order to please God. That's not that there aren't rules. There are rules. The Ten Commandments are rules. They are commandments, not suggestions, not recommendations, but requirements for God's people. So it's not that there aren't do this, don't do that. But is that everything there is to living a life that is pleasing to God? You can imagine if you were a person who starts churches and you start churches one after another after another. Your, your philosophy is not to stay at a church very long, but you, you stay long enough to establish that church. And then you move to another area and you establish another church and, and then you move to another area. That's what you believe God has called you to do. And so like Paul, you have started a church in uh, Philippi and you've started one in uh, in the area of Galatia. And you have started one in um, places like Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and and different other places, Thessalonica and Berea. And now you are concerned about those churches. You would be because they're kind of like your children. You are fully invested in those churches. You care about their success. And so you, you want them to grow. But usually Paul stays anywhere from a year and a half to three years at a place. Now, that's not long by uh, modern measures, I guess, although the average pastor stays two and a half years, two to two and a half years at churches these days. But uh, Thessalonica was a different animal. He only stayed three weeks there. He didn't have a whole lot of time to establish this church. So he is extra concerned that they are growing in their faith. And so he writes to them in chapter four to remind them of some of the things that he said to them while he was with them. He says, you remember how I told you that I, that God wants you to live lives that are pleasing to God. He wants you to live a life that's pleasing to God. Ladies and gentlemen, God wants us to live lives that please him. And the problem is, and the challenge is, that quite often what pleases God is not going to please the world. And what pleases God is not going to please our inward desires. And what pleases God is not going to please maybe uh, some of the friends that we have. But God doesn't call us to please ourselves. God doesn't call us to please the world. God doesn't call us to please those that are around us. God calls us to please him. But what does it mean to live a life that is pleasing to God? Paul doesn't get in great detail here. There's probably a reason. These are young Christians. The church is very young, very, very young. They they may only be months old, this church. And so he's not going to go into complex details of how to live the Christian life. He's going to stick with the basics. I think basics are good. I think sometimes we get too caught up examining the barks of the trees to step back and see the whole forest, the basics of real life. What does it mean to live a life that is pleasing to God? Let me suggest three things from this chapter. First of all, living a life that pleases God begins with receiving Jesus Christ. It begins there. Is that basic enough for us? Is that pretty much Christianity 101 enough for us? Living a life that is pleasing to God begins with a relationship with Jesus. If a person says, and I've never heard a person uh, say this uh, personally. If they say, I can live a good life and please God without uh, receiving Jesus as my Savior, they are fooling themselves. They're just fooling themselves. Paul starts out calling these people, he says, he says in verse one, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, he keeps calling these people brothers and sisters. Why? Because they're Christians. They have a relationship with Christ. He's not talking with lost people. He's not trying to get lost people to live in a life, live a life that is pleasing to God. No, he's talking to Christian people because Paul in this chapter assumes correctly that living a life that is pleasing to God begins with a relationship with Christ. And so he says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, he does the same thing in the opening Uh, Two verses of this whole letter in chapter one, verses one and four, he says, Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Verse four, for we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. He knew that they had received Christ and begun a relationship with him. Let me just stop right there. If you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, first of all, have you, have you ever had an experience where you realized you were sinful and you realized that you could not go to heaven on your own works or goodness or good looks or what have you, and you invited Jesus into your life because you knew that he died on a cross for you and rose from the dead to give you life? Have you been saved? That's my question. That's where it starts. Don't even think about anything else until you get where it starts in a relationship with Christ. Do you know him? Pleasing God begins with receiving Christ, but it doesn't end there. Maybe that's part of the problem that some of us Christians have in not knowing if we're pleasing God. We kind of end there. If we were to have, uh, whenever I I was growing up, we used to have a lot of testimony meetings, especially in revival. There would be one particular morning service because we had morning and evening services. And usually it was a Saturday morning service. And instead of having preaching after the after the music and singing worship, the pastor would get up and he said, today, I just want to let the church speak. There's something on your heart, a testimony you want to give. I want to ask you to uh, just give it. And, and there'd be a kind of an awkward period of silence. And then finally, somebody would pop up and say, I just want to thank the Lord for saving my soul. And uh, and then that person would talk just for a minute and then sit down and the pastor would say, uh, anybody else? Who else? Who'll be next? Preachers need these catchphrases to get people to do stuff. Who'll be next? And it ended up, you know, several people would talk. But invariably, 99 percent of those who give a testimony would only talk about their conversion experience, that point at which they invited Christ to be their savior. And that's great. That's great. Again, that's where it starts. But hardly anybody would talk about what the Lord has done in their lives since they made a professional faith. You see, God wants to start with you receiving Christ. But then, secondly, pleasing God includes loving God so much that you want to live a pure Christ-like life. Paul said in verse 3, he said, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified. Boy, that's one of those loaded words. What in the world does sanctified mean? How many of us use the word sanctified this afternoon around the dinner table? Well, honey, I'm telling you, this meal was certainly sanctified. (laughs) We don't do that. We don't do that. What does it mean? We need some definitions here. It's really simple. The word sanctified means to be set apart, to be set apart for a special relationship, for a special responsibility. To be set apart, to be different, not to be arrogantly different, not to be boastfully or pridefully different, but simply to be different. We are set apart. Christians are set apart for purity. Verse three, it is God's will that you be sanctified. That is set apart. Set apart for what? That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You and I are called as Christians to live a pure Christ-like life. Now, we will fail at that from time to time. But the hope is that the longer that we live the Christian life and and the deeper uh, we cultivate our relationship with Christ, the times in which we fail will be fewer and fewer and fewer. We will never attain perfection. I don't believe I don't think the scriptures teach that we'll be perfect in this life in terms of our behavior. But certainly the older we get as Christians, the better we ought to get become at living this thing called the Christian life. We are to live lives that are pure Christ-like lives. Now, Paul uses the example of sexual immorality. This is not the only this is not the only Uh, aspect of living a pure Christ-like life, but it is one of the most alluring. It is one of the most powerful ones. And so Paul uses it as an example of the kind of sin Christians are to avoid. And he gives uh, three different reasons why we should avoid this type of sin. First of all, it disrespects the object of the immorality. It disrespects the object of the immorality. I don't know if you know this. You probably do. Atlanta, Georgia, is one of the top places in the world for sex trafficking of teenage girls. And it would not be so if there weren't men who were willing to pay for it. In doing so, those men and the people who quote own these girls disrespect. Those girls and treat them as objects and they become objects of that immorality. Paul says this, he says, in this matter, this is verse six, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. You see, when we are impure, whether it's sexual immorality or any other kind of immorality that involves uh, not only offending God, but offending another person, we are disrespecting that person, the object of the immorality. Second, it is wrong because Paul says it dishonors God. Verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So when we live an unholy life, an impure life, what that does, it not only disrespects the object of the immorality, but it dishonors the God who has called us to a life of purity. And then third, it disregards God's commands. It just wipes them away as if they weren't there. Verse eight, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction, what is this instruction? It is an instruction from God. It is a command from God. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but he rejects God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Pleasing God. Begins with receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. Pleasing God includes loving God so much that you want to live a pure Christ-like life. Leviticus chapter 6 verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the outflow of that kind of love for God is that you and I will desire and we will do everything in our power and with the help of God's grace and spirit to live lives that are worthy of this God that we love. And then third, Paul says pleasing God means treating others lovingly and respectfully. Pleasing God means treating others lovingly and respectfully. It means loving each other. Verse nine. Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Pleasing God means treating others lovingly and respectfully, which means loving each other. It means growing in our love for each other. Verse 10. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Let me just stop here. Are you a Christian? Do you have a deep desire to live a pure life because of your love for the Lord? And do you desire to love people and to grow in your love for people. Even the people who are hard to love. There are folks who are hard to love. You and I may be that person. But we know people that are hard for us to love. Pleasing God means treating, uh, treating others lovingly and respectfully, which means minding our own business. Boy, I love this verse. Verse 11. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Boy. Some of us are already at a disadvantage. And you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. You see, it's not our responsibility to fix them. It's not our responsibility to seek out those who are. don't agree with us or who don't see things the way we do or don't live the way we do and fix them. Now, we're we're to be a witness. We are to share the good news of Christ. But it is not my business to fix anybody, nor is it your business to fix anybody. You have all that can be on your plate just fixing you. And so do I. So Paul says, lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands just as we told you. Treating others lovingly and respectfully has a purpose. Verse 12 he says so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Pleasing God. It begins with receiving Christ as savior. It involves loving God so much that you desire and follow through with living a pure Christ like life. It includes loving other people and treating them respect with respect and love and compassion and sympathy. In Matthew chapter 22, there was a guy who came to Jesus. He was an expert in the law. Probably a very intimidating figure. Experts usually are. And he came to Jesus to test him. He says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus just replied immediately. He wasn't intimidated at all. I mean, how can the expert be intimidated by a lesser expert? Hello? He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, what Jesus did was sum up what I just said, a relationship with Christ that involves loving God to the point of living a pure Christ-like life. And it involves loving your neighbor as yourself, showing respect and love and compassion and mercy for those who that we know. You see, the person who's living to please God will begin to see a change in their values and will see a change in their behavior. Those cheating will begin to deal honestly. Those who've been abusive in their speech will start moving toward kindness. Those who've been known for using others will start serving others. Those who fear, who, who, who tear down others in their whispering will seek to build them up vocally. Those who've hoarded their resources will begin investing their resources in the work of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 7, by their fruit you shall know them. So, do you know Jesus? Have you invited him into your heart to be your Savior? Are you living a life that is pure, Christ like? Are you loving people the way God has called you to love people? And are you showing that love? Do, do people around you feel the love? You know, some people look at us and say, man, I just don't feel the love. I don't feel love. Do they feel the love? That's what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. in a nutshell, here it is. God wants you to live a life that pleases him. That's it. Let's just camp out right there for a while. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've called us to salvation. You've called us into a relationship with your son, Jesus. You've called us to live pure lives. And you've called us to love other people as we would have them to love us. Lord, that's the message this morning. And I pray that in this invitation... That message will sink deep into every one of our hearts. And that decisions will be made as a result. I pray that someone would come and receive you as their Savior and Lord and be saved right here this morning. I pray that someone would come and join this church. I pray that people would come and just in talking with you make a commitment to purity. Make a commitment to loving somebody that has been difficult to love. Lord, I pray for people in this room who have concerns that I haven't touched on. And yet they feel a need, a compulsion to come and just kneel in this altar and deal with these things with you. Lord, may this be a time of life change. I pray that every week it doesn't always happen or we don't see it, but I pray that it will happen today. In Jesus name. Amen.